building back greener, what does it take to work more sustainably and avoid squandering the lessons of the pandemic? I'm Nigel Cassidy, and this is the CIPD Podcast. With business still generating almost a fifth of all the UK's greenhouse gas emissions, there are no excuses for leaving sustainability on the back burner. Having lived through the pandemic, customers and employees alike so clearly want to trade with or work for organisations pledged to build a better world. And there's also profit in purpose, using cheaper renewable energy, for example, or selling planet-friendlier products and services. So this podcast is all about taking stock of the environmental impact of your business and putting sustainability at its heart. To help us, Dr James Roby, the long-standing global head of corporate sustainability at the consulting giant Capgemini. Hello. Good morning. Now, Capgemini has 270,000 employees, so right at the other end of the scale, our next guest, George May, is MD of BioBean, a company of just 30 people. He recycles spent coffee grounds into sustainable products on an industrial scale. Well, presumably not all personally. Hello. <laughs> Morning, Nigel. But let's start with Jan Maskell, who's a chartered psychologist and associate of the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment, who wrote the CIPD's Sustainability Guide. Hello. Good morning. Now, Jan, I was quite surprised to see some stats showing so many organisations actually not really delivering on sustainability. I mean, not even matching their own workers' values or expectations. And this, of course, in spite of everything that's going on at the moment, the current consciousness, governments and UN initiatives and everything. I mean, do organisations not recognise the risks of not taking action? I mean, what's going on here? I think you're right that a lot of organisations, whilst recognising that climate change is happening, don't necessarily see the connection between um, the weird weather events that we're experiencing at the moment and what their organisation contributes to that. And I think even those organisations that are doing things don't necessarily see the role that HR has to play in that. And that's that's the reason why I created the guide for the CIPDs. I think that HR have a huge role to play in this. But I think that we don't necessarily recognise this as an emergency in the same way that we did the pandemic. So we're responding to it differently. I think there is growing awareness. I think over the last couple of years, there has been a huge role played by um, individuals and organisations. So the Greta effect as well as things like Extinction Rebellion, whether or not you agree with them, they have brought things to the public uh, public domain. And increasingly on media, recognising that Sky has a programme every day on this issue, and it's already daily in the news on the BBC. So I think it is becoming um, much more of an issue that people are aware of, but it's making that link between this is an issue and what does that mean for my organisation? So there's, there's two ways you could look at this. One is, what impact will climate change have on my organisation? And that could be directly in terms of flooding, weather events, health impacts, or down the supply chain. I was talking to someone in the fashion industry the other day who was uh, recognising that there are serious weather effects that will affect their supply chain in other countries. I think that organisations don't necessarily recognise this as an emergency and then don't necessarily realise what they can do about it. 
Well, Dr. James Roby, it's interesting to hear Jan talk there about recent events. I mean, for years you were pushing targets and then suddenly along came COVID-19 and we're travelling less, we're eating, we're staying local. I mean, I gather that 95% of Capgemini staff are able to work from home. Obviously, that's not true of organisations that have a lot more sort of customer-facing roles, manufacturing, that kind of thing. But I mean, as far as you're concerned, I mean, close the offices, job done. Partly, uh, but certainly not totally job done. I mean, from from my perspective, and clearly COVID has had a massive impact on many organisations, and and certainly in the professional services industry, it's been quite transformative in terms of uh, switching people to a much more remote, much more work from home model. But clearly, professional services organisations have a relatively modest carbon footprint themselves, but often work with organisations which have much larger carbon footprints. So absolutely, we have a responsibility to keep driving down the, the carbon impacts from our offices and from travel. And clearly, we are very locked down at the moment, but we expect that to, um, we do expect that to, to return to some increased level of travel and increased level of office use in, in the future. The other focus for organizations is to think about the bigger impact through their value chain. So whether it's thinking about the, the products and services you buy or the products or services you deliver to your clients. And we're increasingly working with our clients on their sustainability agendas. If we work with, uh, say, a leading auto manufacturer, that organization may have a carbon footprint, which is 100, 200, even 300 times the size of Capgemini's footprint. So again, the opportunity for making an even more material impact is, is quite significant. And I know you're pledged to work at speed to be a net zero business. Just remind us, what that is and I mean is it really based on science or are you just buying carbon credits and offsetting to make people feel better? So I think it's a, it's a really good question and we've, there's been lots of debate about net zero. Uh, it's still in some places quite a contentious term. We're trying to align with the, the emerging consensus sort of led by organisations like the CDP and the Science-Based Targets Initiative. Uh, for me there's three parts to net zero and it absolutely starts with reduction. So the first place you, you have to first of all quantify your impacts, measure your impacts, and set targets which are aligned with the one and a half degree uh, climate science. So we have targets signed off by uh, the Science-Based Targets Initiative, SBTI, in line with the Paris Agreement, in line with that one and a half um, degree pathway. So that's number one. Secondly, you have to deliver on those targets. It's no good just having the targets. You have to drive down your targets over the medium term. So our net zero target is 2030, because we believe a 10-year horizon is a sensible horizon for driving down our emissions. And then thirdly, you need to compensate your residual emissions. So if it is impossible for your organization to get to absolute zero and recognizing that there are certain processes, certain actions, which um, that's not possible with, then you compensate your residual emissions. But, But Nigel, very much compensation and offset is last targets and reduction has to come first. Nonetheless, there's quite a lot of science and analysis in there. And you're a big firm. That's kind of what you do. George May, yours is a firm of 30 people. Now, while this biobean activity clearly is sustainable by design, I would imagine that your actual day-to-day business is not necessarily automatically sustainable in terms of its practices, its energy use and engaging your staff with all that. Yeah, I think that's right. So yes, like you say, you know, inherently what we do is is sustainable. It's environmentally focused. You know, the the purpose of the business is to create big change that lasts through recycling spent coffee grounds and um, through valorising something that was previously a waste. So that is inherently sustainable, inherently environmentally friendly. 
But the challenge for us is we are an SME, we are a manufacturing business. What we are doing hasn't been done before. So there's been a lot of trial and error with machinery and plants and different processes. So yes, there is a, a challenge there in that obviously we have a, a carbon footprint in, in terms of what we do and how we do it. Um, and I think you're right as well to touch on that piece around you know, engagement of, of staff and, and colleagues. And it doesn't automatically flow that just because you are an inherently uh, environmentally sustainable business that all colleagues in the team will, will have the same views on, on life. Um, so we've done a number of different things. Um, you know, we are, and as much as I dislike the phrase, you know, we are on a journey, on a path uh, towards improving how we do what we do. We have undertaken a, a life cycle analysis that doesn't include our scope three emissions. It's not something that at the moment we are in a position to be able to, to sort of undertake that analysis, unfortunately, just the resourcing of the business. We have a sustainability improvement plan internally. We are a B corporation. Um, we've, we've taken the, the results of our, of our B impact assessment and, and, and undertaken a gap analysis to see where those, those areas for improvement are. We've listened to staff from, from internal staff engagement surveys to see where do they feel that we can do better. And we, we've put in place a plan to, to try and move forward. Um, we also have the, the ISO standard 14001, the environmental management system, to give us a framework to operate to. So we're doing quite a lot. Um, it's important to us that not only is the business inherently good and, and, and you know, environmentally sustainable, but that we try and improve you know, our impact day to day. If we have time, perhaps we'll go back to this uh, question of being a B corporation or using any of uh, that kind of analysis to see where you are and see how you can improve. But, uh, Jab Maskell, let's really begin at the beginning. How do you start evaluating you know, the environmental impact of your operation and the effectiveness of what you might already be doing? I think um, James and George have talked about this in terms of starting off with measuring what you currently do. So there, there's lots of ways you can do that in terms of looking at your resource use, looking at your travel, looking at your energy and looking at your investment. That's often missed off the, off the list of things that people look at. And that's particularly relevant to HR. Um, so I think in an organisation, even if, and thinking about James and George's organisations, it's seeing that there's a role for everyone in this. This isn't just something that the sustainability professional does or the facilities management person does. This is relevant to all employees. And this is where HR comes in in that HR professionals are in a unique position in any organisation in that they're probably the only part of a company that has a connection with every single employee at some point. Now, whether that's to do with recruitment, selection, pay, benefits, performance management, HR is able to engage with all employees. So it's interesting when George was saying about engaging uh, with employees that 14,001 doesn't necessarily enable you to do that. 14,001 is a good measure and it's a good start, but it doesn't necessarily encourage engagement with employees. And I think that's a key thing that um, HR professionals can bring to this and the significant leadership role that they can play in this. And George May, of course, you are the HR department and quite a lot of the other departments yourself as well. Yeah, and I think that's a really, it's, it's a really good point that the German, so I agree, you know, 14,001 is a framework, right? It doesn't, it gives you a framework to operate to it. It, it gives you guidance, it gives you direction. It, it doesn't automatically lead to engagement. And, and we are a, uh, you know, we're an SME in, in, in every sense. Um, we don't have a head of sustainability or similar. We don't actually have an in-house HR function either. Um, we have two directors, myself and a, and, and a, and a colleague 
colleague of mine, um, and we effectively are the HR department between us. But then so the engagement piece, therefore, becomes really important. And I think from a small business perspective, if you're looking at environmental sort of improvement, you know, day to day in a business, getting that buy in is hugely important. So our sustainability improvement plan is not headed by Pete, my my co-director or, or myself. It's headed by our head of marketing, our HSEQ lead and one of our finance team. So, you know, what we've done is we, we found champions within the business who can fill that role who, and that helps with the engagement piece. You know, that, that, that draws people in, making sure that questions in the staff engagement survey try to draw out areas for improvement and that then we show that we are taking that on board and acting in response to those. Again, that helps drive that engagement, I think. So I completely agree. The engagement is crucial. And in businesses where you have sustainability professionals, where you have HR professionals, I couldn't agree more. They have a huge role to play. In smaller businesses, I think it's about, you know, making sure you find that the champions that that you acknowledge as well, that this tends to fall outside of people's day-to-day jobs in some instances. You know, if you don't have a sustainability individual, then it, it's an it's an add-on to people's roles. So you need to find those who are really, you know, who, who want to do it. Yeah, I think that's a really good point there, George. Thank you. The question you'd asked, Nigel, was about the gaps and I think what an organization, any organization can do is look at what do we currently do in terms of our policies and procedures. And rather than bringing in new things, how can we integrate environmental sustainability into what we, you know, what we currently do well? So if you already have something like a competency framework, have a look at that and see where does it relate to things that could be deemed to be ethical or around environmental sustainability and maybe enhance those. Similarly, if you've got training and development in your organisation, so um, learning opportunities, even in induction, do we cover what our approach is to um, environmental sustainability? So where is it in the job description? Where is it in the person specification? So is it listed as things that people do or is it knowledge requirements? So yeah, right throughout the HR piece, there are ways in which environmental sustainability can be integrated into what's currently done. And I think it's an important point not to see it as an add-on. So Mm. see it more like um, equality, diversity and inclusion, which is back in the day was seen as something extra to do or health and safety is something extra to do. But now looking at things, so you look at your uh, HR practices through an EDI lens or a health and safety lens. So you look at all of those practices through a sustainability lens and say, you know, what's the impact of doing this in terms of thinking about learning and development? So you look at that in terms of what's the content of our learning and development offer, but also the process by which we deliver it. So what's the the content? What do we talk about? How do we integrate sustainability into everything from induction through to leadership development? And also, how do we deliver that? Do we send people off to um, expensive programmes in Switzerland or do we deliver that through online methods? And Jen Troby, I was quite struck by something uh, you said to me uh, just before we started the podcast about things which are very obvious to people and things which are kind of hidden. With the example, say, that you know the data centre may be busy guzzling energy 24-7, yet people are probably more likely to complain about the use of single-use coffee cups. So yeah, so let me um, let me build on that and build on um, some of the points which we've just been talking about. So I think in terms of thinking about the sustainability of your organisation, I think a lot of what we've been talking about is absolutely right in terms of if you like eco efficiency. How do we make what we're doing more efficient? But I think the the starting point for many organisations needs to be a, a level deeper, 
and actually sort of looking at what are they trying to deliver as an organization? And is that inherently sustainable or not sustainable? And actually, how can you potentially redesign your business about the service you're or the underlying service or product that you are trying to deliver. You know, for example, most of us own washing machines. We don't actually really want to own 75 kilos of metal and plastic. What we actually want to own is the ability to have clean clothes. Most of us have cars. Think about, you know, you get in the car and you drive from uh, London to Birmingham. You end up moving 1,500 kilos of metal and other um, components to move 75 kilos of you from A to B. So again, inherently the process is uh, the, the process you're trying to do, which is move yourself from A to B, um, has a huge level of inefficiency around it just because of the way we're we're framing it and looking at it. So I think for me, when you start thinking about from an organisational perspective, in terms of that sustainability journey. Uh, you need to start by looking at the underlying product or service that you are trying to deliver and then just challenge yourself in terms of how you're doing it. Very interesting conversation a few years ago with a, a chief executive from a ma major airline who was thinking about investing in video conferencing because the underlying business model they had was about connecting business around the world. And traditionally, as an airline, you did that by putting people in thin aluminium tubes and flying them from A to B. And he was trying to explore, you know, well, actually, is there a different way of connecting business people which didn't involve putting them in thin aluminium tubes and blasting them around the world? So, again, that was just sort of a step back before you then drive into the, the efficiency side, which um, uh, Jan and George talked a lot about in terms of, you know, understanding your business and looking for where you can where you can be more efficient. But I think coming on to your other point, Nigel, in terms of um, the visible and the invisible and I think particularly in larger organizations where initiatives aren't often visible to everybody, you need to make sure you have that spectrum. You need to do both the visible things, you know, the taking away the plastic cups, taking away the, you know, in, putting in place recycling bins, which are highly visible, as well as the impacts, you know, the things that you do as an organization which have the biggest impact. So use the example there of um, data centers. Um, you know, for organizations that run data centers, they use huge amounts of energy they have a very large environmental impact. In fact, the IT industry now, uh, if you looked at the energy consumption of the IT industry, it would be that we would be the third largest country in the world in terms of our energy consumption. So clearly there's a responsibility to, to work there. Because it can, George, may be seen as kind of greenwash. I mean, I keep seeing stuff about initiatives by major drinks, soft drinks manufacturers. And I mean, basically they're producing vast quantities of plastic bottles that may not get recycled. So it's such a massive undertaking and uh, you can very easily confuse or mislead uh, your consumers. <laughs> yes, I think, I think you definitely can. Um, I, think, I think there's an interesting role to play by big brands at the moment in this the sort of drive to sustainability and more sustainable ways of doing business in that my personal view is that the brands have a really big role to play you know they people follow where brands lead i think legislation is a sort of secondary factor in all of this and it's the it's the stick not the carrot and so yes you're right um that is the case and i think you know from a i suppose when i look at our business you know we're, we're not quite at that scale yet but we try to make sure that you know, that we align, the, I suppose to James's point, that we try to align what we do and the way that we do it with the kind of business that we want to be. You know, we, we sell a, a domestic solid fuel for, for, for stoves and wood burners. Everyone in that market, bar no one, sells it in plastic, plastic bags. We have made a point of selling it in a paper bag that is 
more readily recycled that is FSC approved. Now I'm sure there are holes that can be picked in using plastic over paper. I, you know, I can, I can probably see Jan and, and James, you know, smirking already, but you know, we've deliberated it because we want to make the point that you don't, you know, to challenge the norms, to try and tell a story in the way that we do things, you know, it, trying to, to make sure that the way that we approach our business is, is consistent with the, the overarching sort of the purpose of the business. And, and yes, we, we've definitely got a way to go. You know, we, we want to make sure that we source sustainably, that when we're choosing suppliers, we, we consider their, their impact, all of those things. So it is difficult. I, I think it's a, it's a minefield. And I think probably whatever you do, you'll always, you'll always get it slightly wrong. But I think that the main thing is that you, you are engaging your workforce, that you are moving forward um, and that you're putting in place legitimate bona fide activities that, that do have an impact. Um, that's, that's crucial, you know, whether that's, we talked about before we started recording, you know, we're looking at, at changing our, our loo rolls um, from a bleached virgin loo roll to an unbleached recycled paper. Now, that will get some people going, how and why is the, why is the loo roll gone sort of a funny brown colour, you know, before, you know, and all of this, and it's not very nice, but, but it triggers thinking. And to me, that's the big bit, you know, in a small business, I want to trigger people's thinking. I want to make them think differently. I want them to go, okay, well, if I'm, if this, you know, that's changed, that makes me think about other things. You know, we, we've replaced all of the taps with push taps. It's, it's the little things that you can do that build engagement, that trickle through and that, that builds a sort of collective uh, desire to, to, to do more. I think George has made some good points there about the obvious visible things that make people think. And this is about modelling. So if the organisation is modelling these things, then there's a possibility for engagement and people asking the question, why have we done this? And maybe suggesting other things. But then there's also the, the possibility of spillover. So this is about values as well. So people may come to work and not share the values of the organisation. But as they experience these things, they may start to shift towards that. And then there's a possibility of spillover from work to home. So some of those behaviours, even if it's things like changing your loo roll, it might be things like travel options that, that James is talking about. So if my organisation is saying, we don't want you to travel to meetings anymore, we want you to do virtual meetings, and we're discouraging that, so we're making it harder for you to use your car, then people might think, well, why are they doing that? And that will sp potentially spill over into their behaviour in their uh, private lives as well. And they'll start to question, does every household need to have a car? Are there other options? And then you've got co-benefits that are associated with those things. So anyone who's looked into the, the issue of active travel and how to encourage that in organisations, one of the big drivers for that is the co-benefits for um, the health benefits for individuals, as well as the reduced CO2 for the organisation and the individual. And we found that more and more people want to get involved with these types of initiatives. And, uh, you know, they're not all driven centrally. They're often they spring up. In fact, our, our global legal team across the across the group have uh, been running a competition over the over the summer in terms of sustainable activities. So they've created a range of activities you can do and you get points for each one. So, for example, eating vegetarian for a week or eating vegan for a week. Interestingly, the top scoring point was taking a three minute cold shower. Um, so I'm not sure how many people um, how many people actually signed up for that one. But it was a great way of engaging the, the team and almost gamifying the whole topic. So people were recognizing that, you know, they can make a difference. And, and my experience is that, you know, people do want to make a difference. They do want to engage with this topic. They do want to work for organizations that are doing the right thing. And, you know, coming back to Jan's point at the beginning, that's where HR is absolutely critical. They also want the recognition for that. 
So your point there about the reward scheme, it might only be a tiny reward. An organisation I work with runs a, a lot of cycling initiatives and they have a monthly draw and you might win something like a high-vis jacket. So the rewards don't have to be huge, but for some people that is a real motivator. For other people, rewards can be, can be seen differently. But I think coming back to the HR issue, if HR is responsible for those things like pay and benefits... Are we rewarding our top people by giving them a bigger, fatter car? And it's just thinking about that as a whole systems approach, that um, you can't just do one thing like set organisational targets. We have to engage individuals and maybe then set their own targets as well. And maybe those individuals are at the most senior level. Absolutely. Those are the best to role model. Because if uh, the organisation is saying we want to cut down our greenhouse gas emissions and yet our chief exec is driving to work in a gas-guzzling SUV, that's not sending the right message. So we need to have consistency. And certainly that modelling, particularly from senior management, will have huge effects, ripple effects through the organisation. So if if the boss is cycling to work, that normalises that behaviour and makes it socially acceptable. So more people will probably sign up for that sort of thing. EV100 come in where you can commit to transitioning your fleet to 100% electric vehicles, which again is something we've done. And we've, we've actually now removed all pure petrol and pure diesels from our car scheme. So if you order a car today, you have to order either a pure electric or a hybrid car. And the hybrids will be disappearing after a couple of years as well. So we're, we're sort of making that transition And as you say, helping people along the journey towards more sustainable choices. But it's also challenging. Do you actually need a car? (laughs) Okay, well, that's a a massive question as well. Uh, George, may I just want to ask you about uh, being a B corporation. I was intrigued to see Coots, the bank, has just become one of the largest UK bank brands to secure that kind of status. This is a company upholding standards in in its dealings with the staff, the community, customers, the environment, that kind of thing. And I know that you have been through that process. I mean, the body shop, Innocent Drinks, a lot of companies have done it. I just wondered what for you was the point, the value of that kind of accreditation? Where we came at it from was initially, we recognised that the B Corporation standard is a is a robust and increasingly well-recognised standard. It's a very thorough review of a way that a business operates. So it looks at your environmental impact, the impact on the community, workers, supply chain, governance, all of these things. So initially, at the back end of 2019, we said that's a work through the, the B impact assessment, which is about 200 questions, really is a benchmarking exercise just to see how do we shape up, you know, against this, against this sort of this criteria, where are the areas that we're not performing so well? So we set out really as a, like, as a sort of benchmarking gap analysis type exercise to identify areas for improvement. Having gone through that, we realised we then had sufficient sort of points to, to proceed to the verification step. And we, we uh, certified in October 2020. And Subsequently, as I mentioned, our, our sustainability improvement plan has been in part based on then running the gap analysis of, OK, we've certified as a B Corp, but there are obviously areas for improvement. And, you know, what are they? They fall into obviously environmental categories, but also workers, governance and others as well. So it's a commitment. You know, we, we've had to change our, our corporate governing documents to be a B Corp. So we've made a, a public statement that we believe business should be run for the for the benefit of all, not just for you know, not just for the shareholders. You know that you're running it for all stakeholders and for the benefit of the environment. So, you know, you are taking a a public stand in doing this. It is something that you are saying we are going to run our business differently and for what we believe are better end purposes. 
I think there is obviously still the risk that some people see it purely as a, as a potential marketing exercise. Um, for us, it like I said, it was very much built out of a sort of going back to Jan's point, you know, the very beginning, you know, assessing where are we? And indeed, we've seen in the news that uh, the Scottish brewer, brew dog is being challenged over some of its work culture practices. And uh, while we don't need to go into that here, I mean, just to illustrate the point that it's it's no good trying to burnish your environmental reputation if you fall short somewhere else in your people management, Jan. Yeah, absolutely. Reputational risk is a, is a huge issue. So you talked about greenwashing. If organisations are held to account for their claims, they have to be able to substantiate what they're doing. And I think that's a really important aspect, particularly as reputation is what can attract people to work for an organisation. And BrewDog did have that good reputation, which has been tarnished now, as as your example. So reputational risk is something organisations take very seriously, but also reputational enhancement through green credentials. And I think that's what George is talking about with the, the B Corporation. And indeed, that, that's obviously one of the prizes here. We're almost coming to the end of our time. I just want to ask each of you, perhaps starting with James Roby, bringing this together, just kind of give us a, a top tip from your own experience on really good ways of embedding sustainability in your organisation so you can see results. So I think a couple of things. First of all, um, as we've mentioned before, you've got to understand where your impacts are. You've got to understand where you make a, a, the biggest material impact on on the environment so so first of all you need to to quantify that and measure that and then secondly i would encourage people to think through the business case for what you're trying to do and and there is a business case there it may be a really obvious financial one that if you put in uh, energy efficiency initiatives then you get direct payback in terms of a savings to the bottom line it may be a little bit less tangible it may be in terms of your reputation your ability to recruit the best people it may be about you know um, getting um, the best customers or the best clients on board but so i they'd be my, my suggestion start with thinking about your material impacts and what you're trying to do what you're trying to deliver and then think through make sure you've got a strong business case for what you're doing uh, and that will then help you uh, help you follow through and george may other than doing something useful with your coffee grounds what would your tip um i think james makes very good points around you know assessing what you're currently doing and how you're doing it, and then the, the sort of the business case i think Beyond that, my, you know, my bit, especially in a, in a small business, is where, where we're so interrelated and, 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 you know, everyone deals with each other and crosses over in terms of teams. You know, that engagement piece is crucial. You know, finding your champions. We don't have an HR function. We don't have a sustainability function. Therefore, those who pick up the sort of the, the driving, the sustainability elements of, of what we do forward, those who are running our sustainability improvement plan are, are sort of volunteers, if you like. And so it comes down to recruitment, getting the right people into the business, engaging them in the right way. Um, and, and I also think, you know, it's different for smaller businesses because we perhaps have less scrutiny, but I wouldn't let the, you know, my view is don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. I think, you know, you want to move forward. For, for the likes of James and others who are much more in the spotlight than we are, obviously there's more scrutiny and, and for listed companies on, but don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. You know, if you're moving forward, if you're taking proactive steps to improve what you do and how you do it, I think that's the most important thing. And ideally that you're, you're, you're measuring it and monitoring it. And last word to Jan Maskell. Absolutely agree with James and George about measurement being important because what gets measured becomes important. To add to what they've said, I think taking a systems approach so that you're not just looking at one aspect, you're looking right across the business at everything. And particularly thinking about things like policies and practices. So organisations will have policies and should have an environmental sustainability policy. But is that consistent 
with all the other policies and practices that are taking place. So that's where you get that systems approach, that it's not just about the organisation or the individual, it's about everything. Excellent. Thank you very much indeed. Our grateful thanks to all our guests, Jan Maskell there, James Roby and George May. And Jan's sustainability guide is on the CIPD website. Only last month we were discussing how people professionals can lead change and we were pleased to have that edition endorsed by the Association of Elite Human Resource Professionals. They pointed out that many have negotiated their way through the pandemic by reflex, adjusting practices on the fly. It really is time, they say, for a different approach. We certainly agree with that. Love to get your comments this time on your experiences so far in the drive towards sustainability. Uh, So please do that via the CIPD podcast site or you can find me, Nigel Cassidy, on LinkedIn. Please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. But until next time, from me and all of us here at the CIPD, it's goodbye.